Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 19 here in just a moment. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. And if you'll turn there, you'll be ready for our first opening here in just a moment. In life, in this world, things come in cycles. The wise man said in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 9 and 10, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been done in ancient times before us. We see that all the time, don't we? Even in the short span of our lives, not looking back to ancient times, but just in the matter of our own period of life. Um, On the way to school in the mornings, when I'm dropping Madison off at the middle school, in order to get to the middle school drop-off line, you have to drive down this road where the, the high schoolers are parking on the right and left side of you. And so the other morning, this has been several weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago, I look over to the right and there is this girl who looks like she stepped straight out of 1994. Uh, She was in the baggy jeans with the the holes in the knees. She was wearing a Nirvana shirt with black dark Doc Martens. And, And I couldn't help but laugh at that because that's the way the girls in high school dressed when I was Madison's age. What has been is what will be, right? And the same thing is true, I believe, when it comes to things in religion as well. These things come in cycles so often. And and that's the case with doctrines and even false doctrines. And recently I've noticed a resurgence of a term that was used a ton, used a lot, maybe 6 to 10 to 15 years ago. I've seen it being used a lot among believers, among Christians, among New Testament Christians online. I've been recommended, people always come to me with book recommendations. I think a lot of times it's they want me to read it and tell them whether it's good enough for them to read as well. I've gotten several book recommendations that were written by uh, denominational pastors and so forth, and and this same term is coming up a lot in these new books as well. Um, I've seen it online um, and even in conversations with people. And that term that used to be so in vogue and seems to be coming back again is the term legalism. Legalism. I'm seeing that everywhere right now. And I struggled a little bit with what exactly to entitle this lesson. My first choice was defending legalism. Now, that's the most clickbaity, right? Clickbait sort of uh, lesson to try and get people tuned in. Ooh, he's going to defend legalism. But I decided, you know, that's not quite right because most of the ideas behind this concept of legalism I shouldn't defend. Because the Bible doesn't defend those things, doesn't say that those things are true. So I said, well, not defending legalism. So then I said, maybe condemning legalism, because we should condemn this concept of legalism. But then I'm like, well, one of the big reasons why I'm preaching the lesson is because some people are condemning things as legalism that the Bible actually says that we should do. And so I said, well, I can't entitle it condemning legalism. And finally I said, well, what about just defining legalism? Uh, That is the most boring title you've ever heard, but it is the most accurate, 
And that's what our goal is this morning. Because if we can define what this non-biblical term means in biblical terms, if we can define it and say this is what it is, then we will know then how to respond when this idea is brought up. If we can define it biblically, then we're going to be ready to process and apply this term correctly if we hear it or read it. Now, as I've already said, this is a non-biblical word. There is no word in Greek or Hebrew that approximates the sense of the term legalism or legalist or legalistic. Uh, A study of the biblical languages isn't going to help us at all. Uh, It might surprise you to learn that this term was actually coined in 1645, and so it's a relatively new word from that perspective. But if you look in the King James, New King James, English Standard, Revised Standard, New Revised Standard, American Standard, New American Standard, you're not going to find this term legalism. Now, in some of the paraphrases, you might find that term. But I understand that just because a specific word is not found in our Bibles, it doesn't mean that that concept isn't in our Bibles, isn't present in our Bibles. So let's look at some English dictionary definitions of what this word is supposed to mean and then say, well, do we find that in our Bibles? Some define it as strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. Strict, maybe even excessive. Strict adherence or the principle of strict adherence to law or prescription, especially to the letter rather than the spirit. And then finally, from a a more religious dictionary, the doctrine that salvation is gained through good works. Now, do we find those concepts in the Bible? I believe that we do. Uh, Let's think about whether those things are positive or negative. I want to give you some possible biblical examples of what people today might call legalism. We think about justification by perfect law-keeping. The idea that I'm going to be saved when I keep all of the laws of God perfectly. Do we find that concept in our Bibles? Yeah, I believe that we do. And if you're there in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, uh, let's do a a rather lengthy reading to illustrate this point. I'm not going to comment on every verse, but let's start there in verse 19. Now, Paul is combating people wanting to go back to the law of Moses, which was a system of law that required perfect law-keeping. And so what does he say in verse 19? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be sopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law was given, specifically the law of Moses was given to clarify sin for us, to show us what sin was and that this was not what God wanted, but also to show us that we couldn't live perfectly without sin. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference Jew, Gentile, proselyte, man, woman, slave or free, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 23. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness 
Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, that he's sending to heaven and hell those who should be there, but also the justifier, the one who allows us the opportunity to go to heaven, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. I can't boast and say, look at how good I am. I deserve to go to heaven. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The law of Moses was not ever going to save people without Jesus. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now please notice verse 4 especially. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If we work and we do everything perfectly, then it's not by grace that we're saved. We're, we're saved because God owes it to us for our perfect obedience. And there were some in this time who were saying, let's go back to the law of Moses. Let's tack that on to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says these are two really different kinds of systems. The law of Moses was a system of perfect law keeping. We prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that we couldn't do it that way. And so that's not what we're going back to. Instead, we have this system of faith in Jesus Christ, which, yes, includes works, but we're not going to be saved by those works. And so, justification by perfect law-keeping, we could categorize as legalism. But you know what? I've never run into a Christian. I've never run into someone who claims to be a Christian who also claims that somehow we're going to be justified by perfect law-keeping. Never run into somebody like that. Now, They they may exist, and I just haven't run into them. And there may be people who wouldn't say that, but they live their lives as though, yes, I've got to do everything just right, and if I do everything just right, then that is when I'm going to be saved. To that I say, and I want to be crystal clear, my friend, the only way anyone is going to be saved is by God's grace. None of us are good enough to earn or merit our salvation based on our own works And anything less than perfection means that we cannot be justified by works or by law. Justification by perfect law-keeping could be called legalism, and I reject it. But it's perfect law-keeping, not the idea that we have to obey commands from God. The second example that I think uh, that might be called legalism... This idea of ritualistically keeping laws, but there's no mind, there's no heart behind those things. Let let me give you a few examples from the Sermon on the Mount so that we can kind of stay in one opening to give examples of these things. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Of course, Jesus, as we studied last week, is correcting the misconceptions that they had about a number of things while also introducing his kingdom 
and his system of faith. This idea of ritualistically keeping laws without any heart behind it. We see that in verse 27, don't we? Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And that's right. We shouldn't commit adultery. The old law and the new were both explicit about that. But there were some rabbis, some teachers who said, don't commit adultery, and that means anything else you do short of that would be okay. Verse 28, Jesus confronts that and condemns it and says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Even this lustful intent, this covetousness in our hearts, that can absolutely be sin. And so we needn't think that, well, if I keep these things, these things that I should do and these things that I shouldn't do, then it doesn't matter what's in my mind. It doesn't matter what's in my heart. That could be called legalism. And absolutely, that's a problem. There are believers out there who think their role as a Christian is to come and sit in a pew. And if I come and warm a pew, same pew every time, then I'm right with God. I just have to check the boxes, do this minimum, and I'm going to be right with God. And if I was baptized the right way, if I go through the motions of the right kind of worship at least once a week, if I give my money to the church, and if I don't do very many bad things, then I'm going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter what's in my heart or what's in my mind. It, it doesn't matter that I'm not growing in my faith. It doesn't matter that I'm not actually actively doing anything from Christ. I'm just like not doing bad things. That sort of attitude might rightly be called legalism, and Christ rejects it. But it's not just that. We might also look to this idea of falsely applying the law to remove the spirit um, we're just going to, what's the technicality, you know? What's the, what's the justification that I can make from the law to do what it is I want to do? And if I can squeeze what I want to do into the law, then I'm good with that. I'm good with the law. We see this from a physical perspective, don't we? In 2019, did you know this? The Texas legislator, le legislature passed a bill. It was called the uh, Lemonade Stand Law. And it put into law that, that children can set up lemonade stands uh, on their own property and sell lemonade or tea. Uh, the law actually says non-alcoholic beverages. They can sell these things, children can, on their own property without a permit. And you say, why in the world do we need a law like that? Well, you know, don't you? You know why we need a law like that. Let me give you just one example. In June of 2015 in Overton, Texas, that's just up the road southeast of Tyler a little ways, two sisters, age seven and eight, set up a lemonade stand because they were trying to raise money to take their dad to Splash Kingdom for Father's Day. The police heard about this little stand. They came out and issued a citation to the seven and eight-year-old girls they shut down their lemonade stand and told them if they wanted to continue, they needed two permits from the city, a peddler's permit and a health department permit, which would have costed several thousand, several hundred dollars just to sell lemonade off their front lawn. Now, personally, I'm very grateful that there are health department permits. 
I don't want to get sick when I go to a restaurant. But that is not at all what those laws were intended to cover. It is not supposed to be applied to eight-year-olds selling lemonade in their yard. That's falsely applying a law in a way that it was never intended to be applied. And the same thing happened in the New Testament. If you're still there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, what said that? The law. The law of Moses said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. What is it that Jesus was addressing here? Well, the teachers, the rabbis of the day, when they looked at the law of Moses, they took a concept, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that was intended by God to be a civil statute, something that was applying to justice in civil government, and they applied it to personal life. Instead of saying, well, the law has the right. If someone kills your cow, the law has a right to require that cow back from that person, which was in the law of Moses, and they applied it and said, no, you personally can seek revenge against someone if they do something to you. And if somebody punches you, you have every right to turn around and punch them right back. It was a misapplication of that law. It was never intended to be applied to our personal interaction with one another where I am going to seek justice on my own. Do people do the same sort of thing today? Take a law and apply that law literally in a way that it was never intended to be applied? Absolutely. Even some of the things, the commands that we see in this same book If you turn over, for example, to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, have you heard this one? Judge not that you be not judged. Did Jesus say that? Absolutely he did. Is it a law? Well, yeah, it's a command from our Lord, isn't it? And how do people apply that command? They say, you don't have the right to tell me that anything I'm doing is sinful because Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. So is Jesus really saying that we can make no judgments against the intents or actions of others? Of course not. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. In the same context, he actually commands us to judge. In verses 5 and 6, we're supposed to see clearly to remove the speck from our brother's eye. In verses 15 through 20 of the same chapter, we're supposed to look and see false prophets. We're supposed to see and recognize who they are by their works. We're supposed to judge them to see that they're false prophets. What Jesus is warning against is hypocritical and hypercritical judgment. And he's warning us, the measure by which you judge somebody else, be careful because you're going to be judged back in that same way. Be kind in the way you judge. Don't be hypercritical. But Jesus never intended for this command to mean that we can never tell anyone that something they're doing is wrong or sinful. 
And so they falsely apply this law to remove the spirit of what this law is really saying. And it's interesting. That attitude is sometimes found in trying to make permissive what the Bible condemns. The Bible condemns something and it's clear and we think, well, is there some technicality where we can get around what this law is saying? And that kind of attitude misses the spirit of God's commands to try and find some technical way of doing what we wanted to do in the first place. As the lawyer famously said in Luke chapter 10, to justify himself, and who is my neighbor? Well, can I even know exactly what this is saying? Where's the technicality? Where's the justification for my own actions? Is that legalism? Well, it might be defined as legalism. Certainly, it's applying the law in a way God never intended. And very similarly, I think this concept of following the traditions of men and making those traditions equal to or even over the actual commands of God. Uh, If you're still there in Matthew, turn back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Several times in this context, we've already read a couple of them, Jesus quotes from the old law and he says, look, this is how they're misinterpreting what the law of Moses actually said. But in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, we have something that's a little bit different. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Yeah, that's in the old law a couple of different times, most notably in the book of Leviticus. But they had heard it said what? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That wasn't in the old law, but that was the tradition of the rabbis of the day. They're saying, yeah, you got to love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. And no doubt that's why the lawyer asked what he did. Who is my neighbor? Tell me who it is I have to love so that I can hate all of these other people. And Jesus' ultimate teaching was, well, everybody's your neighbor. you got to love everybody. Their idea was, well, it's okay. The tradition was it's okay to hate your enemy. Jesus says, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Because that's the way God is, as he goes on to say in the following verses. That's tradition, but it's not really what God said. You'll notice on the screen I've put uh, these, Matthew 15, 1 through 20, and Mark 7, 1 through 13 up there uh, with both of these, with this one and then also with the previous as well. And that's because these passages apply well to both of those. We won't turn over and read those, but you can read them on your own time. There is a tradition among the Jews to get around the command of God that says you have a responsibility to care for your father and mother in their old age. There was a tradition among the Jews that if you said korban, then you could devote the money that you were going to spend on your parents You could leave them up a creek to deal with it themselves, and you could instead give that money to God and wipe your hands of the whole thing. And what Jesus says in these passages in Matthew and Mark is, you have made the law of God of no effect because of your traditions. Your traditions have been elevated to the same level as God, just like this tradition that it's okay to hate your enemy, which nullifies what God's law actually said that we all have a responsibility to love our neighbor. In fact, that's the second greatest command, as Jesus and the lawyer agreed. Does that happen today? We have lots of traditions, and traditions in and of themselves aren't bad. 
Traditions are sometimes the best way to go about applying God's law. And we have to have traditions. You know, I, I've known a lot of people in my life who classify themselves as non-traditional, non-traditional. I don't want to do all these traditions that we have. Let's do something different. And so they choose to do something different. And after a few years, you know what that is? It's a new tradition. It's just a different one. It's still a tradition. So traditions aren't bad in, in and of themselves. It's when we elevate these traditions and say they're on the same level as what God's law is, or even maybe I'm going to follow this tradition even if I read something in God's law that contradicts it. We think about traditions that we have. Uh, how many times or what time we worship on Sunday. Those are traditions. Uh, we don't have to ha have a number of times that we have to meet. We don't have a specific time on the first day of the week that we have to meet. But the very clear example, what I would call the law, the very clear example that we have is that, that first century Christians met on the first day of the week to worship and to break bread, to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so this idea of Sunday morning, Sunday night, it's a tradition. I believe it's a very good tradition uh, that's been very beneficial in so many ways. And yet we cannot elevate that to the same level as meeting on the first day of the week. What we wear to worship, well, that's a tradition, isn't it? Uh, to know that something's a, a tradition or a custom, just go somewhere else. Go somewhere else in the world. Go somewhere else even in the country. Um, I remember, it's funny, the perception you have of other places and other people. Uh, not too long ago, maybe this past year, I went and preached somewhere else. And it was on a Wednesday night. And I had always kind of had in my mind that this particular group of Christians was very traditional traditional, you know, in, in their dress and so forth. And so I get there and I'm, I'm dressed in a, I think I had like slacks and a coat and a tie. I remember I was wearing a tie and I get there and I look around. I'm the only guy in the whole building who's wearing a tie. So you know what I did? I took the tie off. I didn't want any tradition to get in the way of what it was that I was trying to say. Now, I think, I think our dress is important. I think we have to be very careful to be respectful. Um, it bothers me maybe the most if people are going to change into something more casual in order to come to church than what they would wear to school or work or whatever the case might be. But it's tradition. It's tradition. And it is not as important as a command from God like we're supposed to come and worship Him in spirit and in truth, right? And on and on and on we could go. You can think of other examples as well. But we need to make clear in our own minds and in the minds of our children what are traditions and what are the commands and examples we have from God because those two things are not equal. And if we make them equal, then we might very well call it legalism. And then in some ways, this is a summation of all of the ones that we've said already. This idea of looking down on others, other Christians, other brethren, because of our superior law-keeping. The phrase that we sometimes use is this idea of being holier than thou. Uh, one more passage. Let's turn to Luke chapter 18 and verse 19. Luke chapter 18 and verse 19. Excuse me, verse 9. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Is a parable of Jesus, and he speaks this parable to some who, target audience, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They looked at their own law-keeping, and they were superior to others because of their righteousness, and they despised others because of it. 
And the parable is this. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus tells us, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I have preached many, many times from this pulpit the importance of keeping the commands of God. I'm about to preach a little more on that here in just a second. But keeping the commands of God is never, ever a reason to boast. It is never, ever a reason for us to look down on others and say, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. You know, I pray that prayer. I thank God that I am not like other men. I thank God that I've been exposed to the gospel. Some men haven't. I thank God that I grew up in a family where I, I knew the word of God and God from an early age. Many men and women don't have that. I thank God that I have brethren, a family like this. Many men don't have that. And yet those things are not reasons for me to boast in myself. They are reasons to boast in God who has given me those things. This holier-than-thou attitude because I keep the law better than someone else, that might rightly be called legalism. Doing what is right, well... In chapter 17 and verse 10, so you also, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We've done what was our duty to do. It never gives me the right to look down on someone else. If anything, it gives me the responsibility to go to others and expose to them to this same gospel. And so let me make clear in case it's not. We should absolutely, 100%, condemn and reject all of these things, whether you call them legalism, whether you call them sinfulness, whatever you want to call them, we should reject these things as sin. And if that's what somebody means by legalism, then I will fight right beside them to eliminate it in the Lord's church, to eliminate it in the lives of Christians that I know and love, and most importantly, most of all, to eliminate it in my own life. God forbid that I be this kind of legalist. But here's why the name of the sermon is defining legalism. I don't think that's what most people mean, at least not totally. Isn't it odd? In all of the debates that Paul had with the Judaizing teachers, and if you want to define legalism in these terms, that's the Judaizing teachers who are trying to bring Christians back under the law of Moses and say you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the law, and you have to do it just right, or you can't be a Christian. Not really. And they wanted to bring these, bring these Gentiles under a yoke, which Paul says our fathers could not bear. A yoke of perfection, we could not do that. And yet in all of Paul's debates with the Judaizing teachers and all of the letters that he writes addressing those things, not one time did he use a term that was equivalent to what we would call legalism. Not one time. Isn't that interesting? 
and all of Jesus' debates with the rabbis and scribes and Pharisees of his day, not once did he use a term that equates to this modern idea. Why not? For the very simple reason that every single Jew, including Jesus and Paul and the Pharisees and the Judaizers, and every single Gentile who became a Christian, believed that a person's works, his deeds, his obedience to God, were without a doubt, without a doubt, essential to a right relationship with God. The need of practicing good works wasn't really an issue. These things, these things that we've talked about, these were issues, but the necessity of doing what God commands was not. And really, it was for us in the 21st century, it was only after the reformers started pushing the doctrine of faith only, which they mistakenly, in my judgment, attributed to Paul, that the modern idea of legalism was born in the 1600s. And ever since that time, it has been common to refer to people who emphasize obedience to God in deeds or works which are demanded by God's word that these folks are legalists. What about that definition? Emphasizing obedience to God in deeds or works which are demanded by God's word? You can call that legalism, but I will defend that concept. Because that's what God requires for each and every one of us. Not that we've earned anything, not that we boast in that, but absolutely these things are required of us. Is that wrong? God forbid. As we've already said, in the days of Jesus and the apostles, whether or not people should actually obey God with deeds of righteousness, that was never an issue. Proper observance of the law, that was an issue. Jews forcing the law of Moses on Christians, that was an issue. But the need for obedience to God was not. And someone might say that legalism is the idea that a person can be right with God on the basis of obeying God's commandments. And usually that's said in some kind of context where faith is being presented as the only way to be right with God in the gospel. And the legalist, therefore is supposedly this person who believes that faith only, defined as mental acceptance of God, is not enough to save a person. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not trying to hide anything, I do not believe that faith alone, if you define faith as just, I mentally accept that Jesus is Lord, I do not believe that that's enough to save a person. Because I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. If we say that a person must also do certain things in order to be right with God, there are some who would call us legalists. But I want you to note this passage, John chapter 6 and verses 28 and 29. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus goes over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. People come to him and they ask him this question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Even belief, even belief is something that we must produce. It's something that God requires from us. It is a condition of salvation. 
Unless I seriously misunderstand this passage, Jesus said that having faith is doing what God requires. It is working the works of God. Faith is, if you will, one of God's commandments, one of His rules, one of His works that must be obeyed. And so is the person who believes in God being a legalist for doing so? I hardly think that even those who use this term regularly would say that. So what's the point? Why did I preach this sermon? Things are cyclical. And this term is coming back into use a great deal, at least by my observation. And so I leave you this morning with three admonitions in regard to this concept of legalism. Number one, may I humbly ask you to stop using the term legalism or legalist or legalistic to describe other people for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a highly ambiguous term that is not biblical. Now, I'm not opposed to using non-biblical terms if they describe biblical concepts. And if, when we said legalism or legalist, we were just talking about that first list that I made on the screen, I wouldn't have any problem with this term as well. But that's not the way people use it, at least not exclusively. And so in my dealings with other people, I don't bring up this word. I don't talk about this word because it conjures up wrong ideas. Now, I'm not afraid of it. If somebody else brings it up, then we can talk about it and discuss it and maybe ask the question, and this is your second admonition, what do you mean by that? Um, A lot of times what people mean, at least practically, the definition is Someone putting a greater emphasis on law-keeping and works than I do, right? Uh, however much emphasis I put on this, you got to keep God's word and you got to do what God says you do, there's probably somebody who's saying that you got to do more, and I say, well, that's a dirty legalist over there, you know? But there's probably somebody else who puts less emphasis on that who looks to me and says he's a dirty legalist, even if he calls other people that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard somebody use this term in a positive way? You know, they're just, they're such a wonderful Christian. They're just a legalist. I just, I love them. Their legalism is just beyond compare. No, it's it's a derogatory term. And what it does is it creates a straw man that is easier to knock down, right? And I don't want to do that to others. I don't want others doing that to me. And so I've decided that I'm not going to use this term that I've used 57 times in this sermon. I'm not going to use this anymore in my conversations with others. I'm certainly not going to use it to describe other people. um, Because in so doing, I'm really setting them up in a prejudicial sort of way. Uh, And so secondly, I've already kind of alluded to this. If someone is accused of legalism, or, or even if the just the term legalism is used, if we're going to have a conversation with someone about that, the first question we need to ask is, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by a legalist or legalism? And, and a lot of times when I've asked that question, some people have come back with a really good biblical definition, like what I've talked about. I'm like, okay, let's go with it. I agree. That's wrong. Jesus didn't want us to be that way. Other times I've asked people that question. They said, well, you know. I'm like, no, that's why I asked the question. What do you mean by that? And sometimes even that gives us the opportunity to have a good conversation with someone about the interaction between grace and faith and works. But know this, words have little meaning without agreed upon definitions. I stammered like three things in this super important sentence. Let me say it again. Words have little meaning without agreed upon definitions. And if we can agree on what the definition of legalism or anything else is, 
then we can have a constructive conversation about what God requires. And this just might give us an opportunity to study with someone, to share the good news of Jesus, to show the outpouring of His grace, the greatness of His gift, and to compare, compare that, that greatness, to how little God asks of us in return. No one, no one can boast of their own works when we see what God has done for us by His grace clearly. And then finally, number three, my admonition to you and to myself, live in such a way that any charge of legalism just rings hollow when it's compared to our lives and the way we live. I fear that in response to false teaching, we sometimes become out of balance ourselves. I'm not saying that we are. I'm just saying that's the danger, right? There's always the danger of that. It happened with the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. It happened with the reformers in response to Catholicism. And it could happen to us. It could happen to us in a religious world that is more and more de-emphasizing works and emphasizing God's grace and sovereignty. I love God's grace and sovereignty. But de-emphasizing works in a, in a world that's saying there is nothing that you could possibly do to be right with God, nothing that God could possibly require of you, you do nothing, what's the danger? The danger is for us to swing too far the other way and become, I said I wasn't going to do this, become legalists. There's danger in that. And so we have to be careful that we are not guilty of this. Instead, instead, we need to live in such a way. We need to live in such a way that we do the works of God because we love God. Because we're so grateful for what He has done for us. Where we live our faith openly and actively. Where that gratitude for the gift of grace that He has given us is just so apparent in every aspect of our lives that other people come to us asking a reason for the hope that is in us. And if we live in faith and peace and confidence and love and truth, if we are real and genuine Christians, if we are bound by Christ alone but never by tradition, if we never act or even think of ourselves as holier than thou above anybody else in that sort of way, then the charge of legalist or legalism will fall on deaf ears to anyone who really knows us. And that's the way we should live our lives. Where if somebody says, well, I know them, I know where they go to church, they're a bunch of legalists. The person to whom that is said says, Reagan? I know Reagan. He couldn't possibly be a legalist because of the way he lives his life. Amen? I might have to use this term again someday. But I'm going to try not to, though it's in the vernacular, though people are saying it all around us. Let's define it in biblical ways and use Bible terms and then ultimately live our lives where we are clearly what God has called us to be and any charge, any straw man falls flat in such an environment. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, there is nothing that you could do short of perfection to earn your salvation, but... God in His grace has made a way for you to come and accept His mercy and His grace. But there are some things that you have to do. You have to repent of your sins, turning away from the man that you were before. You have to confess Jesus as the Christ. You've got to go down into a watery grave of baptism to put on Christ, that you might rise to walk in newness of life, recreated for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And if you're already a Christian and maybe you've fallen into one of these traps of legalism and you want prayers and encouragement from your brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're here to pray for you and pray with you. Won't you come now while together we stand and while we sing? Resolve.